What I'd like to speak about this evening is the anatomy of a self. The Buddha spoke about liberation in a number of different ways. And at times the Buddha was asked the question, what is the liberation of mind through emptiness? And he answered, when a nun or a monk has gone to the forest or to the roots of a tree or to an empty hut and reflects, this is empty of self, empty of what belongs to self, that this is the liberation of mind through emptiness. And he went on to describe emptiness as the abode of the great person. That emptiness is a metaphor or used as a metaphor for sublime freedom. I encourage the nuns and the monks not to think of emptiness as a state that was only going to be found in seclusion, the seclusion of a forest, not to think of emptiness as a state that was only going to be found when sitting on a cushion, but to abide in emptiness when going through the villages on their arms round, when sitting, when standing, when walking, when lying down, to abide in emptiness when speaking, in thought, and in all the ways that they engaged with an ever-changing life. Emptiness is what remains when craving and aversion and delusion and ignorance are stripped away. Emptiness and the understanding of emptiness is born of deeply seeing into the nature of life and of ourselves. When we hear the word emptiness, we perhaps have a whole range of associations and interpretations that emerge. Sometimes we flinch at the idea of emptiness because we somehow might see emptiness as something that is opposed to fullness, and we rather like fullness. We might see emptiness as something that is opposed to a full or rich or dynamic life. Yet the Buddha and actually all great mystics speak of emptiness as a sublime happiness, as a true peace, as authenticity. When we hear the word emptiness, we might perhaps think of something missing, something absent. We might think that emptiness implies that we're going to lose something or be deprived of something. Yet also the Buddha speaks of emptiness as a way of returning home, as true refuge, as genuine freedom. And that it is the understanding of emptiness that releases our capacity to live a life of joy, of completeness, of authenticity, of integrity. 
we might, one of the associations we might have is that we might think that emptiness would make us somehow dysfunctional or passive. We might wonder where would creativity or engagement or participation or love arise from? And the answer is that they arise from emptiness. The Buddha and all great mystics were not people who divorced themselves from life, who hid themselves away in caves and forests. In fact, they were people we admire because of their radical engagement with life and the world. Of the way in which they speak of emptiness as being the mother of compassion, of empathy, of wisdom of a life that is lived to its fullest. Huineng once said that emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars, and planets, the good earth, mountains, and rivers, all trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell. They are all in the midst of emptiness. Emptiness describes a way of understanding a universe that is vast and without boundaries, that is fluid, that is unfixable, that is unnameable. When I first encountered or had some teachings about emptiness, it immediately struck me how very, very different my own perception of life was. That in my perception of life, not only did everything have a name, but the name itself that I had for everything seemed to describe and represent a very solid reality. Just on a basic level, I would say tree or hair or bird or sun or you or them or me, as if I was describing a very fixed reality, a very separated reality that also coexisted with quite separate other solid realities. And every name I had for things, for people, for myself, seem to come with a story, a story of likes and dislikes, of preferences, of history, of future, a reality that had its moments of happiness and moments of struggle, moments of ease, moments of conflict. In fact, when I looked more deeply at my own mind, I saw that the state of my mind in fact, seemed to be endlessly dictated by how I perceived the world, by how I perceived the world, a world that appeared to be very centralized, very opaque, very solid, often unarguable, unchanging. And my reality, I came to understand, was the reality I was being asked to question being asked to unpack. 
I remember very clearly the biology lesson in high school that we all dreaded the most. And it was a biology lesson when we were asked to dissect a dead frog. And everybody knew this was going to happen, you know, in, I can't remember, 10th or 11th grade, you know, and you heard all the stories about it before you ever did it yourself. So it was always approached as something, well, I certainly approached it as something as an ordeal. So our task was to take this dead frog apart and to study what lay beneath the appearance of a frog. (laughs) So we would lay it all out, you know, organs and tissues, and it was really apparent really quickly that the inside of the frog was really not quite the same as the outside. (laughs) And effectively, the outside of the frog was actually not the inside of the frog. (laughs) So we would have all these... At some point, it really became quite hard in this experiment to actually find the frog anymore. (laughs) All that we would have would all these bits of frog laid out in front of us. And it was so clear that what we had laid out in front of us is not what we had thought of as a frog. A frog that jumped and leapt, that would croak and sit still for ages and then bounce off. Where was that frog? I remember even more, something more recently, when I went to the funeral of a friend. And I sat beside her in her coffin. She lay in her coffin looking at her face. And thinking, this was Jan, who loved to sing and dance, who had a lot of plans, who was at times incredibly forgetful, who had an amazing laugh. And she was really gone. She was really not there. Her body was there. But someone who had seemed so solid, so enduring, such an animated person, was simply no longer there. I think we all have, actually, many moments like this in our life when suddenly the reality of things is not quite what we believed them to be or thought they were. I think we all have many moments in our life when we understand that the appearance of something may not be its reality. It was not just death that had made the frog suddenly different or Jan disappear, but perhaps they'd both always been both more and less than I believed them to be. The Buddha placed emptiness, the understanding of emptiness and non-self, really at the heart of the teaching of liberation. And I think this exploration and this understanding also comes to be at the heart of our own path. A liberation born of deeply understanding the anatomy of this phenomena we call self. 
Now, firstly, we will acknowledge that we certainly seem to have a self. Hmm? A me, an I. And as long as we can remember, we've had a self. When you look at photos, pictures of yourself as a baby, or as a child, or as a teenager, it's easy to point to yourself and say, oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. Hmm? There I am. We don't point to the picture of our brother or our grandfather or a tree in the background and say, that's me. As long as we remember, we've been there. And our self has a history, of course. And the history of our self is rooted in all the experiences and all of the events and all of the relationships in our lives. And I think it's true that our sense of who we are now is very largely, to a very large extent, the sum of all of those memories. It's the sum of all of those memories. The most influential word and most frequent word we use in life is I and all its runoffs, me, mine, myself. We use it so extensively, and of course it only takes a little awareness to see how much self-consciousness actually can govern our lives. What I want, what I feel, what I think, what I like, what I don't like, my fears, my longings, my plans, my hopes, my memories. The thoughts of all of these flood through our day. And yet the sense of I, the sense of me, is also so incredibly elusive. It's a a changeling. If we try to search for a self that is really enduring, really solid, something to pin down, something that can be pinned down, if we try to search for a self that is reliable, that doesn't change, it's actually completely impossible to find. How many selves have you seen today? (laughs) I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm peaceful, I'm also agitated, I'm depressed. The next moment I'm optimistic, I'm forgiving, I'm generous. The next moment I'm seething with resentment. It seems like we don't have one self, but like this whole collection of selves. It's kind of like a, one of those Russian dolls, you know, where you keep opening up and inside there's one a little bit smaller. And it's like they go on and on and on and on. And, and it's so curious how this sense of me is formed. At times, this sense of me, this sense of who I am, seems to be simply dictated to or born of the most dominant mood or thought of the moment. A memory or an emotion looms large in our consciousness. And that's what we are in that moment. It doesn't seem like in this flow of events that we can actually really choose what self we are going to be. We can't decide I'm always going to be an eternally happy self. I'm always going to be a loving self. We can't choose to come into a walking or a sitting and say, well, I'm going to be in a, a, a rapturous self during the sitting. You know, We also can't choose to be an eternally depressed self. 
we can go through life when unmindful, almost feeling like the self of who we are in any given moment is like some sort of cosmic accident. You know, it just happens. It just seems to happen out of nowhere. At some times, we decide more consciously to renovate ourselves, <laughs> and to reinvent ourself. We decide we're going to be someone, or we're going to become someone. We add some new belief, or we add some new aspiration, or we add some new lifestyle or description. At the time, a friend of mine decided, told me he decided he was going to become a monk. So he got a new name. I mean, he did become a monk. He got a new name. He just didn't pretend. He got a new name. <laughs> he got new clothes. He got new, a new lifestyle. You know, he got a new place to live. You know, he got a new sort of family. And he tried, he said, to be everything he thought a monk should be. And he said his life was permeated by this anxiety that the old mark was just hiding somewhere in wait <laughs> and was just going to jump out at some completely inappropriate moment like on alms round and start singing some 70s rock song. Isn't it? Sometimes we just seem to grow out of the self we used to be. Isn't that strange how we just seem to grow out of the self we used to be? And we sort of look back at it and we think, I used to be like that? Isn't that amazing? You know, at IMS in the basement, they have this place called the Dharma Closet where people leave the clothes they don't want to take home. And it's so interesting to go down there because clothes are sort of arranged in these people. You know, so you can see, like, there's a certain kind of selection of dresses left. You can tell they've been left by one person. You know, then you get another selection of shirts or blouses. But you can tell they've all belonged to the same person. And, and I sort of have this image, like, they've left themselves there. You know, that some other self has gone home. You know, they've got, I don't know where they, maybe they took some other self's clothes and went home in them. You know, and some other, some other self is going to come down to their Dharma closet and become that self, you know. It's sort of like this ever-changing pattern of selves, you know, all drawing on this same source. Sometimes our sense of self is kind of adjusted in the light of new experience, and I think it's very important to acknowledge that. You know, if, if a person comes into a retreat or a time in their life and they've had a very powerful belief system, you know, that they're really unlovable or chronically anxious. And then perhaps in the course of their retreat, they discover the capacity to really care for themselves or to find some new level of calm and equanimity. Somehow that old me, that belief system that seemed so authentic and true and real at that moment, somehow seems rather questionable. It no longer just fits quite the same way. Someone who's bowed beneath really deep unhappiness and comes and suddenly discovers even just, even just one glimpse of joy. That belief system, that, that ideology, 
that image of that is who I am no longer fits quite the same way. Even though sometimes we have difficulty actually believing or trusting in those shifts. You know, I do remember very well a woman on retreat having amazing rapture and coming to a group interview and saying, I think it's just menopause. <laughs> I said, no, this is, a, this is actually rapture. <laughs> so it's almost like our self-definition is inevitably and endlessly being changed in the light of new experience, the light of new understanding, the light of new revelation. And yet, even despite these countless changes and these endless changes we've seen ourselves go through, even in a single day, we still are so stubborn, and we still stubbornly maintain that behind all of these shifts, there is certainly someone enduring. There is certainly someone at home someone who lasts, who will continue. And this is what the Buddha invited us to question. Not only the Buddha, but all great mystics, not even all great mystics, (laughs) but today even countless psychologists are inviting us to question this ideology to endeavor to understand what it is that makes me, me. To try and understand what it is that makes me, me. There's a book uh, called Into the Silent Land by a neuropsychologist called Paul Brox, who actually found in the course of his research that he turned into something of a mystic. But he spent his life researching the relationship between the brain and consciousness and a sense of self. And this is one of the things he said. He said, the illusion is unresistible. Behind every face, there is a self. We see the signals of consciousness in a gleaming eye and imagine an essence. But what do we find in that space behind the face when we look? The basic fact is there is no one there. It's a kind of liberation. There is no cockpit of the mind we would call a self, no pilot. What we call ourself is in truth a narrative. A human being is a storytelling machine. The self in itself is the self is itself a story. And Brox went on to use this rather weird metaphor of a computer, likening the brain to the hard drive, the mind to the software, and the self to the text written on the screen. Now, I think this is probably a slightly unpalatable presentation to us, especially from the standpoint of self, because, because we can hear this small voice no matter, no matter the evidence of our own experience, no matter the timeless teachings of all great mystics, 
we hear this voice saying, I'm still here. (laughs) I exist. I'm unique. I have a past. I have a present. I have a future. And, you know, on one level, of course, this is completely true. Our lives are not a fiction. You know, we think, we feel, we perceive, we have intuitions, we have insights. And all of our thoughts and all of our acts splinter into uncountable consequences. We have the possibility of bringing into being all that is wholesome and skillful and healing. We have the possibility of letting go and uprooting all that is divisive and harmful and unwholesome. We exist. You know, we exist. We make choices. We write poetry. We love. We watch sunsets. And we do all that we can for our lives to be meaningful and authentic. All of this is true. And even in the light of all of this, is there really anyone home? Is there really any pilot in the cockpit? Is there really anyone who we can say is solid, enduring, and reliable? I think it's important to remember why the Buddha spoke so much of this and spoke so much of the transformation and the liberation that is born of understanding the transparency of self. Because when there is me, there is you. And it is so hard, so impossible to find anger or rage or suffering or division or fear or mistrust apart from that me and you. It's hard, if not impossible, to find alienation or struggle or conflict apart from the idea of this is me, this belongs to me, this is who I am. We're not here in our practice to endeavor to eradicate or to annihilate the self, but to bring about the end of separation and suffering. Naomi, she had a part of a poem. She said, when I think of the long history of the self on its journey to becoming the whole self, I get tired. (laughs) It was the kind of trip you keep making over and over again. The bag you pack and repack so often, the shirts start folding themselves the minute you take them off. So then we ask ourselves, who tells the story of self? But that's like asking who grows the flowers, who rains the rain, who thunders the thunder. Perhaps really no one is telling the story of self. I think it is more true to say that the story is telling us. The story is forming the self moment to moment. 
The story of ourselves is built and constructed moment by moment from the raw materials of language, of perception, of memory, of experience. The story of self is built moment by moment on the building blocks of body, of feeling, of emotion, of thought. At times, the story of self is told to us by other selves. They tell us you are lovable or not, you are wonderful or you are terrible. Our story of self, of course, is always interwoven with the story of other selves, and it can all seem so real, so solid, so me. When we sit here together, if I suddenly shouted out, Frederica, now if that wasn't your name, you wouldn't pay much attention. But if your name was Frederica, how quickly you would feel the sense of self jump to attention. Mm -hmm. Our name becomes the standard bearer of me. It's part of what almost freezes us into our story, the sense of me quite separate and apart from you or from Henrietta or Josephine or, you know, whoever. When we look in the mirror and we see our face, we pretty much expect to see ourselves, don't we? (laughs) I mean, we'd be quite surprised to look in the mirror and see Jimi Hendrix or Mother (laughs) Teresa looking back at us. We recognize ourselves immediately. We say, this is me. So what is it that is happening in all those moments by name, by face, by story, by perception? What is it that is happening in all of those moments when the sense of I arises so strongly with such conviction? Now, the Buddha taught something that we might call the bundle principle. The bundle principle. Here is this bundle. I am a bundle. I am a bundle of body, of feelings, of perceptions, of intentions, of consciousness. I'm a bundle of elements, a bundle of conditions. And all of these elements and conditions are constantly arising out of a whole field of other conditions, a vast and undescribable and unfixable flow of change that we call life, that we call this moment. Now, the movement, grasping and clinging, is ignorance, which is often latent, coming into form. Ignorance is the belief in self and other. So grasping and clinging arises out of ignorance within this flow of conditions. And whatever we grasp hold of is going to deliver to us the self of the moment. Have you ever found yourself wondering in the midst of some terrible obsession or found yourself indulging in some fit of rage or resentment, 
or pursuing some compulsive craving or some nightmarish thought storm. And when you come out the other end, asking yourself, how did that happen? How did I end up there? And sometimes we even say, I just wasn't myself. (laughs) That's so amazing. We say, oh, I just wasn't myself. (laughs) As if we were somebody somebody else's self. (laughs) We say, I just wasn't myself. Now, in this teaching, those moments and experiences, they're not accidents. And they're not even mysteries. That what we are experiencing in those moments is actually the process of selfing. That self is not a noun, it is a verb. There is no final destination of self. And the process of selfing is actually really quite optional, which is the good news. (laughs) It is a process which is trackable, and it's traceable. It's not a mystery. And to know and to understand this deeply is also to come to the end of suffering. It's to come to the end of all notions of separation. To not understand this process, this verb of selfing, is to find ourselves over and over again in our lives walking in the same circles and asking the same question, how did we end up here? It's not true to say that there is a beginning to this process of selfing. It is a process that is buried buried in the shadows of misunderstanding and confusion. But there is a beginning to the eventing of self. There is a beginning to the selfing events. And those moments of selfing events are what we learn to illuminate with our awareness. We learn to begin to dispel the shadows of confusion because that process of selfing by nature is binding, it is contracted, is it imprisoning? Understanding the emptiness of selfing is also by nature a vast openness, liberation, and freedom. If we are to explore this mechanism, what we might say, the reflex of self, I will give you a very simple example. When we sit here together, right now, we're sitting amidst a vast range of different phenomena, both internally and externally. There are sounds, a whole range of different sounds. People, me talking, There's a huge range of different sights, the people, the colors, the objects, the shapes. Internally, you might be aware, vaguely or acutely at this moment, what your body is doing right now. There's a wide range of different thoughts, possibly, in your mind right now, different images arising and passing. There may be mental states present, probably are mental states present right now. You might be agitated, you might be bored, you might be interested, you might be calm. What we are doing, of course, is sitting in the midst of this life, 
this flow of conditions, this flow of phenomena, none of it is fixed. In fact, in fact, we begin to see that it is only our view that fixes anything at all in this life. Nothing is fixed. It is all unfolding from conditions and drawn into different conditions. So what happens right now in the midst of this flow of phenomena if I do something like ring the bell, okay? I ring the, ring the bell really loud. Now notice what happens right now. Notice what happens. Your attention quite naturally is drawn to the sound. So we start to focus on one thing that is happening in the midst of this flowing, unfolding conditions. We have focused, drawn our attention to just one thing. It is isolated. There is the ear, there is the sound, there is the consciousness of hearing. This is, as we've already spoken about, called contact. It would be the same for a Buddha, It would be the same for the most foolish person in the world. And the Buddha said, the wise seek to understand contact and the foolish pursue it. Now notice that our perception of bell, you know, just even the word, the recognition, our perception of bell and feeling and consciousness they all arise simultaneously. They're not separate. They're arising simultaneously. Now, at that point, if, it were, if we were just attending, it's, it's just an event, right? We know it's a bell. There's a feeling response to the sound and the perception that is probably actually not the same for everybody, depending on our conditioning. You know, if you are tired right now, and I rang that bell, you know, you'd probably think, great, it's almost time for bed, this woman's going to stop talking. (laughs) You might be really pleased. If you're kind of really spaced out, wandering somewhere else, you might even have hardly heard that. (laughs) If you felt like you were hovering on the precipice of some great enlightenment experience... (laughs) The feeling you may have had may have been really unpleasant. Oh, she blew, you know, she really blew my moment. <laughs> now, with the response to the perception and the contact, the process or the event of selfing is can, this is where it starts to be born. This is where it starts to be born. Because we start to gather, some, uh, different factors start to gather around that perception and the sound and the feeling. We might like it, we might dislike it. We begin to move into desire of wanting or not wanting. That's a secondary reflex. Huh? Wanting or want, not wanting. Now, when does the sense of I come into play? Did it come into play at the sound? Did the sense of I come into play at the perception? and the associations you have with the perception? Did the sense of self start to come into play with the wanting or the not wanting? And notice when there's no mindfulness there, there's a certain continuity of events that are set in motion. 
like we start to begin to write the story about that sound. You know, if you're a musician, you might be figuring out how to put it into a composition. If you were really weary and kind of aversive, you might be starting to plan your bedtime rituals. You might start to think of all the bells you've ever heard in your life. Where can I buy the bell? (laughs) If you were really lost in delusion, you're probably getting up right now and thinking the talk's over. (laughs) The process of grasping and fixing is part of the process of beginning to build a self-event of that moment, a self-event that owns the history, the present, and the future. And we can entirely forget, completely forget, that this is just one moment, one event of selfing amidst the countless other events of selfing that we have experienced today. This one feels can feel very real, doesn't it? It always feels very real. I am like this. I need this. I want this. Again, we're actually not telling the story. The story is telling us. The story is shaping us in that moment. We are actually not even doing the grasping. Who is doing the grasping? Who is the pilot who is doing the grasping? We are not doing the grasping. The grasping is creating the view of self. The grasping is creating the view of who I am that is then seen as solid, fixed, independent. The residual view of forming that view of self is to have a view of all things. All things from the view of self that is formed as being as solid and enduring and patented somehow. All things are seen as solid and fixed and independent. We have I and you, inner and outer, mine and yours. We also have struggle and suffering and conflict, all of which is indeed optional, just as grasping and selfing is optional. Now, the Buddha, this teaching really encourages us to face this movement, this momentum of selfing, these events of selfing, events of grasping, and to contemplate right here. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not who I am. That this is the way to the end of suffering and conflict and struggle. That this is the way to liberation and peace. The great Tibetan teacher Tsongkhapa called this contemplation of emptiness the track upon which the centered person moves, the abode of the free being, We contemplate that in everything, in our bodies, in our moods, in our emotions, in our thoughts. We contemplate it each time we hear the echo of selfing in the thoughts and the words, I am, I have, I want, I like, I need, I, 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 the story goes on. We don't try and to negate, we don't try to deny or to negate this event, but we ask ourselves, what it is. And if you search for that I, if you search for that me, me, what do you find? More closely you look, the more closely you look into that event of selfing, you see it already dissolving into something else. 
and there's no sense of me that remains anywhere. When grasping is liberated by awareness, what is discovered is a vast and open, receptive spaciousness that is imminent, dynamic, and free. We discover the liberation of mind through emptiness. And we also understand that that is the liberation of the world through emptiness. Chang Su once said, Do not be an embodier of fame. Do not be a storehouse of schemes. Do not be an undertaker of projects or an owner of wisdom. Embody to the fullest what has no end and wander where there is no trail. Hold on to all that you have received from heaven, but do not think that you have gotten anything. Be empty, that is all. We have a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.